You're listening to Talkback Gardening with Deb Tribe and John Lamb at the Royal Adelaide Show on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning. It's Saturday, it's spring, it's September and it's showtime, the four S's, and we are here, John Lamb, at the ABC stage in the Jubilee Pavilion. We should say good morning also and welcome to those who are coming to the show and particularly make sure you visit the Goida Pavilion because the horticultural display is on and I think uh, they need to be congratulated after two years of absence. They're back and it's a brilliant display. It sure is and we uh, are going to speak to the winner of the best feature display garden a little bit later in the program, our very own Sophie Thompson and she will be here live on the stage with Costa Georgiadis from ABC TV's Gardening Australia and Costa, larger than life, can't wait to hear what he's got to say. Um, One texter here has asked what's the situation at the Royal Adelaide show? Here it is. I heard you can't pat the animals, the cow sheds, horse stalls etc due to foot and mouth risk. The Royal Agricultural and Horticultural Show and Department of Primary Industries are just urging all showgoers this year to wear clean footwear and clothes to the event and not to touch or feed the animals in any of the pavilions unless they're expressly allowed. And people who've been overseas in the past seven days are advised not to enter the livestock pavilions at all. So that's pretty important information. Yes, yes, the last thing we want is foot on mouth. We haven't got it yet, but let's hope we don't get it. Exactly right. So, um, John, of course, will answer your gardening questions between our very special guests today. The phone number is 1300 991. We love your text comments on 0467 Simon Simon says another grape growing season is upon us up in the Adelaide Hills so I'm really interested in Darren Ray's weather outlook both mid to long term my fingers are crossed for a fruitful season for all growers out there well with that said it's time for the spring seasonal outlook isn't it John Deb we've been talking to Darren Ray on the first Saturday of every month for quite a number of years (laughs) and uh, people have said what's Darren like well, he's live here, <laughs> so you can actually see what Darren looks like. Good morning, Darren, and welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah, thanks, John. It's it's such an absolute pleasure to be here in person with both of you and uh, and everyone out there in the audience. So, I, I just yeah. have to say that with radio. People always imagine that you'll look differently when you see them. Does he look anything like you expected? You have to be loud because it's radio. No, there you go. Apparently none of us do. So there you go, Darren. You'll have to tell us later what you thought Darren would look like. We have a competition on that. Uh, But there it is. He's a real live uh, climatologist and he's independent. And uh, we're going to talk to you about uh, the weather. Let's go back to last month. You suggested that maybe uh, September could be our wettest month. And uh, things have changed since then. How wet is September going to be? Will it be our wettest month or could it be that we've already had our wettest month? Yeah, it's um, a great question, John. Um, So we've been talking about the Indian Ocean influence that's been around this year and the negative phase of that Indian Ocean dipole climate influence. And that sets up the background conditions. Um, And if you look on average, what happens through those events, they have peak impact um, in August, September, October. So right at this time of year, and that's obviously a pretty important time of year for crop growers and um, yeah, a whole bunch of primary producers and, and people in the garden as well in terms of wetting things up ahead of summer. Um, so we've got that around at the moment, but um, the other thing is on top of that background is you've got what's going on with all the 
tropical activity that pushes the moisture across the country, doesn't link up to the cold systems. And um, so that basically switches things on and off as you go through the season. And um, yeah, it's, it's proving a little bit interesting this year because we've had periods where it's lined up in July and really things are really kicked off. And then it's eased off in, um, uh, sorry, through June and then July it's eased off a bit and then August it's been a bit patchy. So um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's been an interesting one to watch. It certainly is. And you're talking about the, the warm waters to the north of Australia and that's giving us the cloud. And then there's the Indian Ocean dipole effects there and, and they all have their own systems. And what you're suggesting is that they're, they're all out there, all working, all creating the potential for rain, but mm. they're not lining up so that they all rain over South Australia. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, so we've seen some instances, for, in, um, for example, where the tropical activities come together off the Coral Sea, and so it's fed into lots of moisture and rain over the eastern states. If that had been a little bit further west, um, it would have come down over us. So it's, it's really they're getting that time, that um, synchronisation right across the northwest of Australia that's pretty key. Um, and it, we are seeing a little bit of that at the moment. So if you want to quickly look at a show forecast, John. Um, we well, can... I was going to start with that, but yeah. I got so excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I mean, it's a good example at the moment. So things have been a little bit suppressed over the last couple of weeks, but we've got a bit of a, a pulse coming through across northern Australia. Um, it's just edging its way across from, from, the, um, from the Coral Sea. So there's some pulses that come from the west in the Indian Ocean to the east and others that come from the east across the Pacific towards Australia and into the Indian Ocean. So we've got a, one of those moving across over the next few days and um, that's really going to pulse the moisture up through midweek. So we've got some beaut conditions. Um, this weekend's looking fabulous for the show. Um, and then through Monday, Tuesday, and then a bit of cloud developing during Wednesday. We've got a cold frontal system, and we see that rain, the satellite images coming down, the cloud coming down from the northwest. And um, so we've got some rain developing later on Wednesday. And um, one thing I'd, I'd probably stress for the show is uh, watch out for some potential for some thunderstorm activity on Wednesday evening. Could we just so, take a look at that system? On my little model, it looks like it's going to rain cats and dogs, and uh, probably it's also going to go inland. Uh, would you care to comment on those two issues? Yeah, it's, um, it looks pretty patchy around. A, a very tight line of thunderstorm activity that will develop um, during the evening and move across, um, across the central parts of South Australia. So it's going to be one of the systems where there could be some really significant rain events um, in some locations, but it could be a bit patchy as well. And it'll move across pretty quickly. Yeah, it does move through very quickly, John. Um, but it does, does see persistent showers, light, you know, sort of lighter showers um, coming around behind that, that um, line of thunderstorming and rainy activity Wednesday night. That does stream through pretty steadily through Thursday, Friday, um, before clearing off on Saturday. Um, so really, yeah, the best days are going to be the next few days and uh, up to midweek next week. Um, and then it does look like it'll clear off enough by Sunday to be a, a, a nice day for the finish of the show on Sunday. OK, well, that's a good um, start to yeah. September. Take us through September now in terms of rainfall. Uh, we're up to the middle of September. Is it going to be wet or dry? And uh, what's happening at the end? Yeah, so there's, um, there's a bit more tropical activity developing mid-month. So... Um, uh, you know, around about sort of 16th, 17th, there's another pulse comes coming through that feeds into a system. So it's a bit, but it's, but it's, it's does still look a bit patchy. So it's not really locking together in quite the way to really generate and really big events. Um, 
And so, yeah, a bit on and off. And it does look like it'll, it'll really come together a little bit around again at the end of the month and, and through the first week of October. Okay. So that's, that's probably their best chance at early October of getting a really decent rain event. Right. Oh, at the, right at the end. So we look at September. Uh, is it going to be, uh, uh, well, will it be average rainfall? What's average rainfall for September is around about uh, 40 millimetres, I think. Yeah, 40, 40 or 50, yeah, around that sort of mark. Um, yeah, it's a bit tricky. It's, um, you know, like we, we could, could end up with sort of 30 millimetres out if a thunderstorm comes over the top of us, you know, next week. Um, and then, you know, get a significant amount accumulate through the, um, through the weeks after that. Um, but, yeah, the models, if you just look at the straight-up model output, it's looking like something a touch over the average for September. OK, well, that's pretty good, I think, mm-hmm. for those wanting a little bit more rainfall. So let's, before we move from September, take a quick look at temperatures. Yeah, so temperatures... Um, so things have been pretty mild, a fair bit cooler than average. We had a, a cooler than average winter overall um, and it does look like it'll run that way through much of September um, fairly mild next week and then warming up a little bit mid-September um, but then in the models they've got a, a really strong warming in late September early October so what what looks like in terms of temperatures overall you know a little bit below average for September but a strong warming at the end of the month and so we've been talking, we've touched on a little bit about, you know, when things might really kick off in terms of soils warming up and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, it does look like that warming at the end of September, early October, will really move things into a pattern where it looks like it's about two weeks ahead of last year in terms of temperatures. So as we go through October um, onwards, it um, does look like things will warm up maybe about two weeks earlier than last year. So for the great growers, Deb, um, so for Adelaide Hills, for Mm. instance, the timing of everything, I'd expect to be about two weeks ahead of some terms of flowering, bud burst, all of that sort of thing. Um, I'd expect things to be about two weeks ahead of last year. There you go, Simon, there's your answer. Yeah, uh, yeah. and and that's very important from a gardening point of view. I think most of the gardeners are sick and tired of the cold, miserable winter and expecting that it's going to be uh, a late start to... uh, Tomato planting season, and I've been suggesting it's going to be probably middle of October. You're suggesting now that it's going to be a warm weather coming in at the end of September and early October, so we might need, or we possibly, get our summer vegetables will be planted probably on time, just after the footy season. Yeah, yes. So, yeah, we did, um, we had an unusually cold start to October last year. Um, this year looks like it'll be a bit different and bring things back two weeks earlier. All right, well, we need to hurry along. Yep. So October in terms of rainfall and temperature. Yeah, um, October's yeah really interesting one. It looks like there's going to be large periods without not a lot of trop- that tropical activity pushing the moisture down over us. Um, so, yeah, it really does look like it's going to be start of the month, end of the month kind of thing. Um, uh, so, and the yeah, rainfall totals overall look yeah, uh, not super wet. So... You know, below, really below average rainfall for October. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and temperatures? Uh, temperatures, yeah, still a touch below average, but yeah, a, a, quite a bit closer to average than we've seen last few months. Frost can cause big problems early in the season. Uh, the buds come out, the plants start to grow, along comes a frost, burnt off. Uh, what's the potential uh, in terms of frost? Um, yeah, uh, so, I mean, really interesting one. The 
with the negative ID, you get the cold fronts come a bit further north than usual, and so we get whacked with lots of windier conditions, a bit more cloud. That tends to reduce the frost risk a bit. Um, and we've seen, seen that through this season. Um, it hasn't been completely absent of frost, but um, basically, yeah, the fact does in the models, so digging in the models a bit, around sort of, you know, risk of nights below two degrees, that sort of thing, and that basically ends before the end of October. And November, so, and November just a quickie on November in terms of uh, temperature and rainfall? Uh, so November, uh, <laughs> yeah, so temperatures get returned to average much more, yeah, returned to average through November. So November's typically the time when the Indian Ocean deep influence uh, weakens off back to neutral. Um, but you can often get a, a decent tropical burst of activity and a decent rain event associated with the end of the, ne- the IOD influence. Well, the important thing is it just doesn't disappear, turn dry on it. Yeah, and it doesn't. Um, so it does look like it hangs through, and it does look like a bit of, might see the tropical activity come together a bit in the second half of November into early December. So that sets us up for summer. Um, and just a quick comment on summer. Yeah. I, I think people were suggesting, maybe I think a couple of months ago you were suggesting that uh, summer could be fairly similar to last year, uh, but uh, there could be some changes. Yeah, so very quickly, we've had two negative, in, uh, two La Nina summers, uh, last summer and summer before. There's, there's been some indications whether this one's going to go into another La Nina, um, and that which means milder conditions, uh, milder temperatures and wetter, wetter conditions for rainfall. Um, that looks like it might be a little bit the case in December, but then it looks like it weakens off really quickly back to neutral so that things warm up very quickly in January. So I'd, um, the modelling's pushing um, a, f- a significant sort of heat, uh, heating up and, and heat, possible heat wave conditions in the first week of January and through mid-January. So um, it does look like it'll warm up pretty quickly. And that sort of changes complexion quite a bit. It does mean that we could see some increase of increased risk of, of you know, fire activity, that sort of thing, in January, February this year well, compared I'll to earlier put, summers. Put, put you on notice on that one because I think people will get their plants established early in spring. Looks like it's a good uh, growing conditions for spring and it will be awful if they have a heat wave uh, to, uh, um, I suppose, destroy their wonderful concepts of what they're putting together in that springtime period. So what happens then? And I think the importance of shade and shade cloth during that January period will... will be focusing on that quite considerably. But it's it's lovely talking to you. Yes, and <laughs> seeing Live, you in um, the flesh. Yeah, it really is. And, and uh, I think... Uh, are you happy to take a question or two? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm not sure if we're taking questions from the audience. I, I, I think the questions are for general talk back gardening, but I know you're oh. sticking around, Darren. Yeah, so yeah. if you would... I, I have to say thank you to the wonderful people that are here right now, right straight off the blocks. Lovely to see you. Yeah. Don't we love Darren Ray's forecast? Yeah. <laughs> we really do. So oh, Darren th- Ray, independent climatologist, so great that you join us at the first Saturday of every month and give us these long-range um, outlook, seasonal outlooks looks for our gardeners and it's so lovely to see you live even if you don't look anything like anybody expected you to look. <laughs> okay and Darren if you'd like to just pile to the back and then mm. if anybody's got a particular question they would like to talk to uh, Darren about weather I'm quite sure you're happy to yeah. stand around, yeah, for, a around for a while. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank right. you, and, uh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure so 
seen you both. Thank you. Enjoy your day at the show. Darren Ray, our independent climatologist, he is a gem. Carol says, conclusion, there will be weather. This texter says, any rain for the Murray lands, it's dry as chips. And this texter says, I'm just south of Meadows and had barely average rain for August, the driest July on my own record by a huge margin and not too bad June. Seem to be missing anything good that's about. Only had one double-digit fall for August, extremely unusual for a hills location. Yes, I think here in Adelaide we ended up after end of winter about 20 millimetres above average. Um, we've had uh, above and below and it just comes out at 20 millimetres above. Already got a wonderful crowd here. Thank you for coming. How about saying hello to everyone on the, on the radio? Hello! Yeah. <laughs> um, John Lamb and I are here. We're taking some live questions. We're also taking your questions on the phone line. Chris from Happy Valley. Now, you want some advice on protection from fungal issues. Uh, good morning, John, and good morning to the ABC listeners. Um, we just This sort of dovetails into what Darren was just telling us, John, uh, for those uh, gardeners in the metropolitan area. Extra rain and a more moisture in the environment f- is good for plants, but what are the tips that you can give us that actually help us protect our plants in this sort of environment from some of the pests and diseases that invariably come from actually having extra moisture in the system? That's a pretty broad question. Could you talk about which kind of plants you'd like protected? Um, look, I'm thinking along the lines of um, some of the vegetable crops that we're about to sow or what we may have coming through, as well as some of the more tender plants that we normally grow uh, as as avid gardeners we tend to um, grow a range of different plants many have many enthusiasts and I know that when you put extra extra moisture into the system um, you get growth but you also get a lot of things that come along with it. Spots and rots yeah look I wouldn't mind just a quick word on uh, curl leaf on stone fruit to start with simply because curl leaf is one of those uh, fungal diseases which can cause mayhem on stone fruits particularly peaches and nectarines and it is very temperature and moisture related and so if we get showery weather uh, at this time of the year you're likely to get curl leaf and what Darren was saying is very very important we're going to have a little period of dryness and then next week it's going to be wet So if you've got your uh, stone fruit next week and they haven't flowered and they're just about to flower next week, I would be putting on a copper spray this weekend and you've got protection because once the flowers open, it's too late to apply. So just watch the weather situations in terms of fungal diseases like curl leaf because you've got dry periods, nothing happens, and those that have flowering uh, in the last week where it hasn't rained then they won't get curl leaf. But if you don't protect and we get rain next week, you'll have curl leaf, I reckon. And people will be ringing up and saying, what do I do? So that's the other problem there. From from your point of view, the vegetable point of view, the big one to watch is your tomatoes early in the season. If you plant uh, tomatoes and the season, uh, the the ground is relatively cold to start with, so they grow slowly. Mm -hmm. And the one to watch out is target spot. Target spot is soil-borne, and what happens is the rain falls on the ground, it splashes the fungal spores onto your tomato plant, and because the tomato plant is growing slowly, uh, the fungus has time to climb all over it, and you have all these uh, uh, yellow leaves with little spots on them, and, and you're probably in a wet season you could probably lose it and the important thing is uh, if you have protection 
the, the flower, the plants can actually grow away from the disease. So uh, it, it, <laughs> you've got to be smarter than the disease. Um, black spot, of course, is going to be a, a problem for for rose growers and also uh, those that have got vines uh, would be putting on a protective spray because uh, I think Darren has indicated there's going to be enough showery systems coming through during September and October that you need to put protection. And, and they're the main ones, black spot, curl leaf and target spot. They're the three that I think I'd be worried about. The others, I think... Uh, we won't have powdery mildew unless we get uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, humid weather, yeah. and, and that's not likely to happen early in spring. Um, so, yeah, no, that's good advice, John. Um, I know that sometimes you do also get pests that uh, like to proliferate in in a, in a good environment, um, but uh, certainly stone fruits. I, I, I noticed my peach tree a few years in a row ended up with curly leaf because I was a bit slow on getting the the spray onto it. So thanks for your advice. Okay. Good. Thanks yeah. for asking the question. First cab off the rank, Chris, grab Emma and get your uh, magazines. Now all the way from beautiful Tanando, one of the gems of the Barossa Valley, Penelope, thanks for joining us. Now you want some advice re-transplanting veggie seedlings. Good morning Deb and John. Uh, I planted some seeds, eggplant, leeks, tomatoes and basils and to my shock they germinated. <laughs> um, they, I've left them, it's still in the punnets. Do I need to prick them out and put them into a, a bit bigger pot or can I patiently wait till it's time to put them in the garden? I'd suggest that you put repot them. Uh, so if you've got little seedlings... Uh, it's important that you move them and allow the roots to grow. Yeah. So if you leave them in the punnets, they'll stay there and they'll, they'll be all uh, tangled up. And then when you try to transplant them, you, you'll pull the root system apart simply because they're all tangled up. So put them into little uh, containers that uh, hold about a litre of potting mix. Uh, you know, that's probably about six or seven centimetres across. And I think if you do that and put them somewhere where they get... Uh, as warm as possible and keep them warm uh, in their little containers and I would be planning on putting them into the garden not until at least the beginning of October and we'll be talking about soil temperatures a lot on Talkback Gardening when the mm. temperatures are 16 degrees and above that's the time to put them out in the garden if you put them out now they'll sit there and sulk and they'll be most unhappy and you're instead of being excited you'll probably be very very sad thank you john thanks penelope uh, emma will give you a couple of magazines there uh, lawrence has come all the way from borough another tourism gem for our state great place welcome lawrence now you want to know about dividing bulbs Yes, thank you. It's great to see you here, and the ABC stand <laughs> is looking fantastic. Um, now, John, my bulbs are obviously flowering at the moment. They're looking beautiful. Everything in Borough is looking beautiful. But what care should I be doing once they've finished? I'm always at a loss to know what to do once they've finished. Well, I'd like to say do nothing, but almost do nothing. Um, it's very important after flowering you leave the leaves alone. And if you want good flowers next year, you actually fertilise after the flowers are finished. That's a good idea because, no, not too much. I use an organic fertiliser and just uh, uh, stimulate them maybe with a, one of the seaweed products. And that just means that the plant, after it's finished flowering, is busy gathering all the nutrients out of the soil, putting it back into the bulbs. So you've got nice, healthy bulbs 
but if you've got a ground and you've been growing bulbs there for quite some time, the bulbs jam together and you get old bulbs and new bulbs. And so wait until the leaves start to die down naturally and at that stage you can dig them up and that's the stage to divide them and sort the big ones from the small ones and put your big ones next year in the best position and hide the other ones somewhere where they're getting sunshine and they've got an opportunity to grow into big bulbs and there you are, you've got a lovely display. Fantastic, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the question. It's great to see people from all around and now Jason from the Riverland, the gorgeous Riverland. Oh, so we've had all representation from all around our wonderful state. Jason, it's a tomato question. Correct. So <laughs> thanks, Deb. John, um, I've listened with interest over the last few weeks, months in terms of soil temperature. I'm just wondering, you know, I can monitor my soil temperature, that's fine, but what's the optimum temperature to start planting my tomatoes, whether it's seeds or seedlings or, or both? What would you say optimum? Um, to get them growing yeah. fast so that I don't get some of those um, diseases that you were talking about earlier. I'd wait until at least 16 degrees, that's most okay. important, and 18 degrees is even better, and tomatoes will grow the fastest in the low 20s. So it, when the soil temperatures get up round about 19 to 21, and that's usually in November, they take off like the rockets. And a lot of smart gardeners, they don't plant their tomatoes until late October. And I'd carry out a, a survey of tomatoes and who's the most successful, and invariably it's those that put in their tomatoes in that late October, early November period have the best tomatoes. And what they often do is buy tomatoes early, buy seedlings now, go, as you go home, buy a, a, a punnet of seedlings, put them into little small containers, put a cordial bottle over the top, keep them nice and warm, and they have just a few tomatoes uh, they're putting out in the ground maybe uh, just after the footy finishes in the end of September, early October, what Darren was saying. So you've got a few tomatoes, early tomatoes, but your main crop, I would suggest, wait until that late October, early November period because if they grow fast, they grow away from the disease and they're less likely to get the disease at that particular stage. And then, uh, uh, depending on the, the, the weather, I think a lot of tomatoes are going to be hammered in January unless we have shade cloth, but uh, I think it'll mellow off later in, in uh, summer and autumn will be an ideal time to put in a late crop. Excellent, thank you. I do have some seedlings that I've got growing um, late, late, in, um, late in autumn, so, which is going to be really good. The, okay. uh, the other commentary I'd make in regards to leaf curl, because I used to be, or I still am, a commercial stone fruit grower. Oh, yes. We can spray copper up to about 10% flour, because inevitably what we find is stone fruit will always crop too much fruit, so it's actually good putting copper on a little bit later yes. just to burn off that little bit of those few flowers just to reduce the crop load. Yes, and what you the, 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 you raise copper, and copper can actually damage flowers yes. and uh, the, the new leaves. They're very, very uh, sensitive to copper. And so if you put on one copper and the rain comes along and you want to put on a second spray, change from copper probably to Mancozeb uh, is the one I would recommend. Are you happy with Mancozeb? Uh, yes, yes, yes. It's not too bad. It does have a bit of um, effect on our predators. Um, and we tend to find it, from a commercial point of view, we tend to find two spotted mites come up if we use too much Mancozeb, so we usually try to stay away that. But copper, if we can get on copper early, 
Um, and especially if we've done an autumn copper, that's critical as well yes, when our leaves are dropping. That's very important. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and being a commercial grower, you have access to fungicides that probably home gardeners don't. Yes. So at, if, a, you, at a cost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. But so if you haven't, uh, if you've used copper and you don't want to use mangazeb because of its effect on uh, uh, predators and things like that, but probably uh, eco fungicide, yes. which is just purely a potassium spray, is also very 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 effective, not as effective as Mancozeb, but then you, you can, can't have it always. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks. Lovely to see you, Jason. And uh, Juliet Blakeview says, we throw our kitchen scraps in the compost. We got tomatoes and pumpkin growing in it. Good work, Julie. Yes, often people will say that they grow their best tomatoes in the compost heap. Isn't that incredible? Oh, yeah. It makes a lot of sense, It does, actually. a nice and warm environment for them, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the message from that, of course, is um, the reason they do that is because the, uh, the compost heap is, is breaking down and there's lots of little uh, microbes in there uh, and, and they're feeding the, the, plant. The, uh, the plant. And so if you want to replica replicate that, get lots of good quality compost, put it into your soil before you put your plants, and the same thing will happen. Excellent. Sue is from Cheltenham. Now, Sue, you've got some grubs you'd like identified. Now, John, I don't know how far you can stretch to have a look there, but uh, tell us about your problem, Sue. Uh, well, I don't know if it is a problem or whether it's a natural part of the composting, but they're actually in the garden. Okay, so John is right now putting his fingers into a, a container filled with soil, yes, desperately yes. trying to find the grubs at yes, hand. Yes. What do they look like, John? Uh, oh, they're just like, like little maggots, but uh, thin maggots that need a decent kind of a feed, um, and they're probably about uh, just over a, a centimetre long. Uh, they're tiny little wire worms, and they will actually grow into insects. Um, and... I would do nothing at all um, if... Uh, what kind of plants are you going to grow? They're just in the soil, in the top part where the compost is. Oh, OK. No. On the garden. Well, let them... Because uh, composting... Uh, the, 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 the process of composting is, is, is not just little microbes in the soil. There's all kind of critters mm. there, big ones, medium-sized ones and little ones. And the big ones break it up and, uh, into smaller pieces and along comes another critter and that breaks it down to the very, very small ones. And that's what they're doing. They're getting yeah. the, the bigger pieces and just breaking it down and uh, they defecate and uh, what comes out of them uh, is, is good stuff and it becomes part of the, uh, the humus that's required. Required. Um, so I just would leave them alone. Uh, the only time you'd be concerned is if uh, uh, the, the insects that uh, uh, result from them changing from uh, their nymphal stage to an adult stage, they can cause damage to plants. But I'd wait till you can see damage to your plants before you do anything. Right, well, they're just everywhere. They, they wouldn't be um, earwigs, would they? No, they're not here. Oh, <laughs> well, Thank you very much. Thank you, Sue. Yes. Thanks for bringing it along. I'm looking That's for okay. a hand wipe for John here, who's had his hands in the soil. If anyone's got one, we'd love one. Thank you very much, Sue. And our last question, because I can see a couple of super special guests here. Sophie Thompson, first prize winner, Thanks is coming money. on the stage. Costa Georgiatis is not far away. So, Jennifer, um, you're our last question this morning from Parafield Gardens. It's Rian Avocado Tree. Thank you for being here, Zoe. <laughs> We can come and see you guys. Great to see you. John, I have an, a worst avocado tree oh in my garden. 
It's been there for 12 years. Yes. I've just picked four large ones four. about a week ago. Yum, yes. Now I've got about 12, 10 to 15 this size. Finger size. Finger size with a glove on and flowers coming. Is this just normal? Yes. Is there always three generations? Uh, you find it depending on when they flower um, and when they fruit. But it's not to be of any concern. You'll find that uh, uh, the big fruit, you can enjoy those. The yep. ones which are sort of growing up, uh, by the time that the flowers are uh, opening and setting, you'll find that they'll probably be at a reasonable size to pick. And then uh, along comes a, a, another crop. So uh, that's just nature at work. How long will these take to be large then? Is that another year? Uh, no, you'll probably take uh, probably about six months from flowering okay. to fruit. Now, okay. the most important thing is when it's flowering, and this is where most people lose their avocados and they don't set, uh, simply because when they're flowering, they need a huge quantity of water. So most important okay. that when they're flowering, that you're watering them almost every fourth or fifth day oh. and uh, also mulching, have a good mulch yep. on at that stage yep. so that when you do water, the yep. water stays there. Yep. But uh, you, you can't, I won't say you can't overwater, but it's hard to overwater when they're flowering and uh, you'll be surprised at how quickly that water disappears when they're flowering. Invariably, it's in that late October, early November period and that's where you get a lot of wind and the wind yep. will dry out the water. Yep. <laughs> Goodness gracious. We're about to be Thank attacked, you. folks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you Jennifer. Much. Look, we have got a couple of super special guests here on the stage. There's an aura of excitement. I'm certainly excited. ABC TV Gardening Australia's personalities, our very own Sophie Thompson. Just have to say straight up, congratulations on winning first prize for your amazing Sophie's Patch Grow Up Garden. It's incredible. Thank you, Deb. It's a bit of fun. Lots of colour and lots of messages in there. Well, yeah, we'll find out more about that in a moment. But Costa Georgiatis, welcome. Thank you for coming all the way from the Eastern States to be on the stage here. And he, great to see Costa, isn't it? And he's been doing some judging for the show. So wonderful that you finally made it here after a couple of false starts. Yeah, and I've just learned about how extensive this show is, not just in terms of all the displays, but what it means to the whole state and how many people come through the show in in the, the, the period of 10 days. It's, it's massive. About half a million people, I think. Whoa. It's a, a lot of people. It's incredible. You attend a lot of shows. Yeah. And you see a lot of gardens. How do you rate the Royal? Well, from what I've seen, and I've only had a, a slight taste, it's just been a, a small entree, um, it's fantastic. I was watching the judges prepare to, to uh, assess the carrot cakes. Yes, um, very important the, judging. <laughs> I, I feel for the people that have to try all those cakes because <laughs> you, you'd come out, you can't come out of the blocks early. I did it once with Anzac cookies and I started taking a huge bite out of each one and by the time I got to the 56th one, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, my God. So, now big respect to all those... Um, the the the, the oh, not the marshals and the that, judges the and judges stewards. and stewards because they, they keep this whole that the, the vibrancy I mean people that have I met some children that have submitted plants you know they said oh, I submitted a succulent and I submitted herbs and and to see that excitement and to get a, a, a banner or a prize like that's what grows 
the connection to the, the show and to growing. That's right. And part of the display, of course, were the scarecrows. Have you had an opportunity <laughs> to see the scarecrows? Well, you're and I do oh. believe there's a competition for Costa-type scarecrows. Can were, 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 were you impressed? Was I impressed? I was humbled. Sophie and I went over <laughs> and judged them yesterday. And there's three categories. There's traditional, then there's storybook. And, and recycled then, too. And recycled. Yeah. yeah. And then, oh, so there's four categories, wasn't it? And, and then, or re- yeah, and then, and then the Costa, a whole Costa section. And it, it really is humbling to stand there and think, like, all these children have put so much effort in. But the thing that struck Sophie and I the most is when you look at what they've done, you also realise that they've been thinking about the messages that we're talking about all the time. So they're thinking about composting and recycling and u- reusing materials and not throwing things into landfill and, and, and um, materials and where they come from. All of those messages that we're talking about all the time. And that, that idea that, you know, kindergartens, primary schools, they've all been working on a project with those messages. Um, that's what makes you feel really kind of, oh, I was, I, I got a bit emotional. Yeah, and people can see that you do become involved with what you're doing. And what I'd like to do is ask you a question, oh. a personal question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you go to shows and, you, and many gardens and you see so many beautiful ideas and you say, that's one, that's another. One day you're going to have to stop doing what you're doing and go home. And I suspect you don't have time to garden at the moment, but when you have your garden, Costa's garden, what kind of a garden are you going to have? That's a really good question because Sophie and I were were walking around her garden, uh, her display garden just now. Isn't it a brilliant idea? Yeah, and and the things that strike me, and it's, it's what we do all the time, is the signage and the little details that bring people into the story. Yes. That they... Sophie's not only giving answers, she's asking questions so that people ask questions. And I think any garden that I'm involved with would do that, make people ask questions, because once they ask a question, then there's a level playing field to come up with ideas that they can then manifest to suit their... Place. So, so I've asked the question, I want the answer. Yeah, okay, so my answer, yes, it would be a street garden that rambles down the street um, across other people's borders um, with, with, with signage and street composting and um, street trees that bring all sorts of birds and insects and habitats and there'd be insect hotels and there'd be grasses and emulate aspects of the, the local growing plants. So, no, they'd, they'd have a lot. Sophie, we have to talk to you about your wonderful display. And as I said, it won the first prize for feature display here in the horticultural section and it's a response to our urban landfill isn't it? Well urban infill infill. and and urban landfill. So both I live on (laughs) landfill Now the the challenge that I see as I drive around a lot of the traditional size blocks are being um, bulldozed and subdivided into multiple townhouses and you know people often don't know how to respond to creating a garden in a smaller space so Grow Up was all about trying to give people ideas on how they can green up and cool down our cities because urban heat Island effect is concerning nations around the world. Germany's worried about it, England's worried about it and here we are in hot dry South Australia so we need to think how we can cool down and green up 
And in there, there are, you know, um, if you're down here, you can grab a brochure and it's got all the different elements of the garden. If you're not down here, head to my website, Sophie's Patch. Um, there's information on there and more photos will be uploaded shortly. But one of the things that Costa just alluded to is the verge. You know, one of the biggest threats to wildlife in our cities is a lack of urban habitat. And if we all adopted our verges and planted them up with local Indigenous plants or native plants, we could actually um, create wildlife corridors through our cities. And that's what Costa's done out the front of his place in Sydney. And that's what we could all do. Because the verge is, if you've got a small space, adopt the verge. Mm. You know, councils have verge policies. And, you know, there's a bit of artistic licence. I haven't got local Indigenous plants because I couldn't get them. So they're just native plants in my display. But, you know, creating habitat for birds, bees, wildlife, all sorts of creatures is important. It is so important. And I'm sorry, I've seen so many wonderful gorilla verges around yeah. the place. Yeah. And they are absolutely glorious. And like you said, you can see the butterflies. You can see the bugs buzzing around them. You can see the birds coming down to get their worms. It's all there in this mini ecosystem on the side of the road. People yeah. like having a small garden and they want the privacy. And I think... You've introduced the concept of tall and skinny so mm. that you can either have a, a wall there that's tall and skinny which hides the neighbours and yep. they, or probably you can't see their tin roof is yep. probably the nice thing about it, but also there are benefits, of course, from having a fastidious that's right. Barrier. That's right. So we've got um, examples in the garden of things like tall, slender trees that are narrow and skinny. There's green walls. Now, green walls in South Australia can be a challenge. They do require quite a lot of water and because of our hot, dry climate. But I've got one in there just to show if that's all you had, you could still grow veggies in a green wall. Um, and we've got, you know, I can't have climbing plants here because it's the wrong time of year, you know, deciduous vines. But we've got um, woven pergolas showing vines on them. And we've got things hanging on mesh. So you know, it doesn't matter if you're renting or you're owning whatever your space, you can green it up and cool it down and provide a habitat for you as well as the other creatures we want to adopt. Yes, and I think in the past we've had gardens to uh, look at and then we've had uh, gardens uh, to eat. And, we have. And, and now we're getting gardens to interact with and so you've got the whole lot in one uh, display. Yeah, absolutely. And food security is uh, has been top of mind for many people. So we've shown that you can have, you know, a wicking bed with some leafy greens and all sorts of things in there too. So, um, you know, being able to grow at least part of your own fruits, veggies and herbs is awesome. That is fantastic. <laughs> um, say hello, everybody. Give a big wave. Thank you. Now, Tony from South Brighton jumped up first when I said, Costa Georgiatis, we want a nice, interesting question for Costa. What have you got for us, Tony? Uh, well, hi, everyone. Um, Costa, a regular watcher of the gardening show for many, many, many years. Oh, thanks, Tony. I'm listening to this show, of course. Um, but I was wondering how much, you know, it's very slick, it's very put together. How much preparation <laughs> do you have to do to put together the gardening show? Oh, wow, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. Um, look, the preparation's incredible. I mean, what you see of Sophie and I and Jerry and Tino and, and Jane or Millie or whoever it is, front of camera, I mean, behind it, there is an incredible amount of work. The researchers find a story. They have to speak with the, the, the people involved. They have to organise the logistics of locations. They've then got to organise the, the crews that, that turn up on the day. The, the story scripts have to be written by a field producer so that there's a, a, a story 
outline that's going to be organised. Then the camera crews and camera and sound capture it all. Then that goes back and gets ingested. And then there's a team that does the editing. And then they have to put the the, the titles on there. And there there are so many things. And then and then it goes out into a onto a shelf. And then that gets picked by the series producer that says, okay, this is this episode. We we want a garden. Uh, a nice garden story. We want something native. We want an edible, edible plant story. We want a my garden path. So there's all these elements, and that's a that's a team of 25, 30 people uh, behind it all. And uh, you know what we get the privilege of doing is is really interfacing on that front line with the the, the gardeners or the or the local groups. And uh, yeah, it. T- we're, we're only here because there's an amazing team behind us. And great gardeners around to talk to. Excellent yeah. question, Tony. You are now going to be decked out yeah. for, for the rest of the season in Gardening Australia merch. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining God, us this I'll morning. I'll give my wife. Shall I? She can do the gardening. Uh, <laughs> look, I've got a question for both of you because uh, I think people, particularly new gardeners or people that are really concerned about um, the climate change and the environment, feeling overwhelmed and thinking, well, will what I do matter? What have you got to say to those people? Costa, perhaps. You go, you go first. Oh, yeah, I, I think, you know, you only needed to look at the um, state of the environment report and that would be enough to make you snuggle up in a corner in the fetal position and just think, well, where do I fit into this? But I think... You know, following on from Tony's question, what we're doing as a show, what you're doing every Saturday is saying to people, here's solutions, here's actions, here's the reality that what you're doing matters. You know, planting one pot plant that brings a pollinator that feeds a bird or that feeds an insect, which then means that those seeds can then be spread. Like, all of these things matter, whether it's the street garden that you plant, whether it's the food that you produce for your family that means you don't have to buy food and create more food footprint miles. All of those little details matter. But when you join a group, and if you join a group, then the horticultural therapy side of gardening Mm -hmm. comes in because you're not alone. So joining your local land care, joining your local community garden, um, just being out on the street and and meeting local people in the street. There's so many layers to it and it all makes a difference and uh, yeah, so from that point of view, don't don't look at the big picture with rampant urgency, look at it as small pieces that we're all being a part of. Yeah, that's and, and even down to, you know, there's so many things, you know, sometimes people do get overwhelmed because it's such a big thing. But even down to, you know, what happens with the food waste left on your plate oh. at the end of the day? You know, don't scrape it into the bin. When we send food waste to landfill, 40% of our landfill is composed of compostable kitchen scraps. You know, when we send it to landfill, it breaks down, creates methane, 21 times global warming potential of carbon dioxide. That's all really negative. All you need to do is put it in a bakashi bucket or a worm farm or a compost bin and then it feeds feeds your soil, right? Yeah. And, and soil is going to save us. So, you know, it feeds the soil, it grows great veggies, and then it all feeds back in. So it doesn't matter if you're renting, you know, because people no. often go, I can't afford to put solar panels on the roof of the house. You know, don't just look at how you can grow trees and plants to cool your house down. Then you'll be using less electricity. Then you'll be, you know, every time we put our air conditioner on, that actually pumps out hot air, which makes our cities hotter. So how can we, you know, use our air conditioning less um, and just green up anything, grow anything. 
to start with. And the food scrap thing is really important because that's multiple times a day mm. you make a decision to be a contributor. And, and, and something as simple as that, if you add that up across a day, a week, mm. a month, a year, that means that you are making a difference. And, and if you look at that rather than the big reports and that overwhelming, then that overwhelm gets turned into actions and then you become an activist, a, a daily activist. Can I also just quickly say, last week I filmed with Woodville Greening, which is an amazing group where they've adopted the railway line. And one of the things that's really important is we can go off and, you know, we, we become uh, tied up in tribes. You know, I'm interested in old cars, so I'm part of this car club. Local community, knowing your neighbours, is really, really important. And what I love about these local groups where they all, you know, they either just get out on the verge, is it's actually building a tighter, more resilient community, local community, which is what we used to have and what we've lost. Uh -huh. I wouldn't mind following on that one because a lot of the information was spread through garden clubs. Yeah. And one by one the garden clubs are dying because the people are getting older and older. And I wonder whether it's the community gardens that are taking off at the moment and whether they are going to replace the garden clubs and that will be the way that people will learn. We're talking about the new gardeners coming along. Uh, uh, is that how the whole system will evolve? Well, it's like anything. When you think about it back in the day, I mean, you know, you had the RSL club that was a hub. You had the bowling and the tennis clubs that were hubs. And now some of those are evolving into community mm -hmm. gardens. I filmed a great story in Perth um, about a, a bowling club that's now become a community farm. Yes. And, and I think it's, as Sophie said, this opportunity to bring people together. And there's Intrepid Landcare, which is a young people's version of land care where they tack on to um, existing groups and that way we can see the passing on of the knowledge and it doesn't it doesn't end and I mean Open Gardens SA is still thriving and that's mm. another way for people to connect so so yeah community gardens are, are that new hub. Could I be we, we, a little we... bit political there because last week I had Neville Bonney an ecologist and botanist talking about ecosystems and he was concerned that uh, there are the community organisations out there and people doing good, but the government need to get behind it and there is a time for governments to look at, at garden health as well as human health and ecosystems. Of the people, by the people, for the people. Remember that they're representing us. Ask them questions, put people on notice, be active, because if you don't ask the questions, they'll be influenced by other lobby uh, sources. So we need to step up and make, make any representative accountable. Just do it. Great to see you here at the Royal Adelaide Show. Costa Georgiatis, our beautiful <laughs> Sophie Thompson. Catch her grow up garden. John Lamb, we're out of time, but we'll be back to do it again next week. <laughs> We will, yeah. Until next week, I'll say good gardening.